Hello everyone and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. Today's episode features faculty member Matthew Fosch, an accomplished sportsman and businessman who began his early career as a first-class cricketer where he opened the batting for Essex County Cricket Club. After retiring from first-class sport, he moved into business, eventually setting up Seagrave Fosch Futures Limited in 1989. The company grew to become one of the largest brokers on the London financial futures market, Life, in the 90s before its eventual sale to ICAP in 2002. Matthew then moved to the insurance industry, taking on the role of Group Chief Executive at the quoted Lloyds insurance company Nove Group PLC. After Nove was sold to Axis Capital, Matthew became Axis Capital's Executive Chairman in Europe. Today he is also an advocate for diversity and inclusion in financial services and a champion on the Inclusion at Lloyd's initiative. I'm Gemma Soul and I hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm delighted to have with me on the podcast today Matthew Fosh. Welcome Matthew. Thank you Gemma. Um, Matthew you've had a really interesting career which actually started off in sport. So um, tell me a little bit about your sporting background. Well, it was back in the, the dim and distant 70s. And interestingly, it was, it was at that time, you had a lot more people who played more than one sport. Now everything is so focused that, you know, rugby, cricket, they all have nine, even 12 months seasons, if you like. But then, of course, you could do six months of a winter sport, six months of a summer sport. And so you had many more people like, names you may remember, Alistair Hignall, of course, played for England and first-class cricket. Paul Parker played cricket and rugby for England, or for, certainly cricket for England and rugby uh, first-class career. Ian Gregg, a South African, and myself, we, we had six months, I was six months as a professional cricketer at Essex and six months playing first-class rugby at Cambridge and beyond. So it was much more possible in those days. Um, and so you got these sort of more Corinthian type people than, than you're able to do now when it's so much more professional in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And uh, you opened the batting at Essex, is that right? I did, I yes, did. I, 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 I always tease Graham Gooch that I taught him all he knows about opening because when he people forget that actually when he first started playing cricket for England, he got his famous pair against the Australians in whatever year, 75 or 6 or whatever it was. He actually was batting five. He didn't open until some... He didn't start opening when he started opening for Essex sometime later. And I had gone to play for Essex as a young, you know, a young bum. I was a squirt. I mean, I was a nobody aged 17 or 18. And, and there was the great, you know, Keith Fletcher's, John Lever's, Graham Gucci's. Uh, and and Fletch, Keith Fletcher came up to me at one point. He said, Matthew, you know, I was batting. Mike Deness was opening with me a bit. And he said, Matthew, can I have a word? And I thought, oh, here we go, number eight, you know. And he said, um, well, would you would you mind opening with, with, with Graham today? And I said, no, Skip, of course not. And, and I recall Graham starting, I mean, and I may have, I, that might be apocryphal. I remember o- opening with him then, he started opening. And I always teased him that, um, yeah, yeah, I taught you all you know about opening, of course. You know, when he got his 333, he said, I think I've learned quite a lot from you, Foshy. Not. But anyway, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, that's right. I had a great, only for a couple of three years, a young pro, aged 17, 18, 19, for Essex, with, which what was a, in what was a really good Essex side there. I mean, the, in, I left actually in 78 and 79, they started winning everything. So it wasn't unpropitious, not a very propitious time to leave. But anyway, it was a great side, a lot of personality, all the, it was a really fun Essex team and um, you know I had a great three years as a young a young late teenager and you stepped away from that so um, what what encouraged you to make that decision to move away from sport having been in that cohort of really young promising stars 
Well, it was it was um, you know what we know about sport is that you you know you need two things. It's a little bit of talent, and you need a hell of a lot of commitment. And you know that the, the, the you know like every generation, we had our young superstar sportsmen at the time. People like David Gower in cricket, anyway. David Gower, Mike Getting, uh, and and that young England side that I was privileged to be a part of in '76. And all that. but I I was always aware even as a quite even quite early that they had something i didn't have they really really wanted to be the best in the world and i was a little bit of a it was I, as i say you know one was best a little bit of talent but it's by that's when you get to the top it's 90% graft and 10% talent you know you, it seems to me any every top sportsman you speak to it's all about how much you want it because the, it's it, and and i didn't have that i didn't have the real desire to be the best cricketer in the world or the best rugby player i just didn't, i i i had you know i could play a cover drive occasionally but i couldn't really make myself want it as much as they did and that was just a flaw you know a talent i didn't have and so i recognized as quite a young man actually you know what i may be okay at this but I'm never really I don't want to be the greatest in the world I, I know how good I am I know I thought I knew how good I was and how good I wasn't and so I said no I'm done and uh, it's best to leave it leave it there that's quite a deep level of awareness to have as a, a young man who's I think yeah you feel what you feel don't you yeah. I mean I can remember you know when, when the cricket season um, ended and I, I was couldn't get to get my whole rugby ball fast enough uh-huh. Uh, and when the rugby season ended, oh, we're looking for some warmth and getting the whites on, you know. And it, yeah. it, it was just, I, and that's, and and on the basis you couldn't be, you know, the best in the world at both. I, I, um, it kind of it got to the, the when you get to the top of that tree, the competition gets fiercer, and you have to commit more. And I, I suppose there was an awareness that, do you know what the sacrifices that have to be made? I just didn't want to make them, and that mm-hmm. that was telling, I think. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of a. a push away from sport recognizing that you didn't want to have a, a career in sport and be among among those peers at the time what was the pull towards business um it was just for me that um I came from a business family my dad was okay. a printer and had built a family business and that was all very interesting and and and, uh, and so I, I for me actually the biggest competition of all was the game we all want to play which is the game of business. I mean, forgive the metaphor. You know, it's, it's all, it was a, a sense of, look, the one, the one game that everybody wants to be good at and the ultimate competition, if you like, if you I see what I'm saying, was the world where you have to earn a living and you have to compete with everyone else to earn your piece of the, the global economic pie and you want your nibble at it. And it was, that was, for me, a, a, as much of a competition as, as, you know, opening the batting kind of thing. And so it was a it was a desire to go out and compete at that, and so it, it was a it was a draw there as well. That, that, and so that was definitely a feeling. You know what? I, I don't. I like competing. I like competing with people with in a team against other people. So you know, business has got a lot of lot of attraction for that reason. So you know, that was that was part of the pull away, the draw, if you like, mm-hmm. for, 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 toward business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that transition then. So. You- Away from sport towards business. What was your first job like? Because um, you've had an interesting. Well, yeah, my career. first job was an absolute horror. I mean, my first job was was I, 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 after less sport. I actually only ever having travelled around the world, you know, on a, on a coach with a blazer on, kind of thing. Uh, I, I'd never really been away just with a backpack, and so I did what you know so many young people do, particularly now and, and since. Um, and so I had a year or so after travelling, came back, age 22, post-university this was now, came back age 22, and, and thought, what am I going to do? You know, I, I'd had this slightly 
lionised time when I was, you know, in the sports and, you know, oh, they're, they're, he's a cricketer and all very lovely and what have you. But it didn't, you know, you, you, that you're now rammed right back down the bottom when you're earning a living. You were nobody. And that was, you know, that was an adjustment, to say the least. Um, and so I, I, I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I had no, I had no idea. And, and you know, I, I really didn't have any great sense of purpose or direction. It was at a time, of course, when... The, the financial service industry, this is early 80s now, 81, 82, we were in a recession, you know, we'd had, Thatcher had just won the election after, after the, the misery of the late 70s, it was still miserable in those early years of Thatcherism, and, and it, I didn't, I didn't, the opportunities were relatively few. Anyway, the financial service industry was, I lived in London, so that was a logical place, and it was beginning to grow, and so I got a job in financial PR, actually, which I absolutely hated, but it was a job. <laughs> And earning three thousand five hundred pounds a year, I was I was dead proud, and and I had a had a job, and 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 that was, but I was miserable because it didn't really it was quite flaky. I thought I, I mean it's a PR is a very important part of any business, but I wasn't terribly good at it, and I wasn't a great um, seller of something that I you know of other people's businesses. I didn't really sort of connect with that. So um, after a couple of years, I then got sucked into the city proper, into the markets. And then I kind of got it. Then I thought, yeah, this is fun. This is proper. This is competition. It was growing. It was feverish. It was competitive. It was noisy. It was, you know, occasionally aggressive, occasionally creative. It was all those things that 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 I enjoyed actually, and a lot of people enjoyed. And I, I loved the markets, and that's where I learnt my trade, if you like, about markets, generally financial markets. And then I thought, yeah, this is this this works. And of course, it was such an extraordinary time in the eighties. I mean, it all went frightfully over the top by the end but it, it was at the time it was a very exciting very dynamic very ideas creativity energy all those good things and there was a lot of it and and so that's where I finally found my my niche and tell me about because you as you say you started off working financial PR so you're working for others but then you made that transition to working for yourself and um took that step yeah that was that was that was a big that was a a big deal because it was but it was it was something that ever since I'd been a young boy at school ever since I'd been a young as long as I can remember I'd always wanted to have my own business bizarrely I can remember at the age of eight sitting at the kitchen table um designing and I am no drawer let me tell you but I designing the 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 the, the letterhead for my new company and I was eight and I can remember it was called it was called Acumen. Well, I didn't know sure I knew what Acumen meant then, but you know it sounded cool and kind of this kind of kind of edgy and Acumen. You know, I, I know what I'm doing. Kind of. So that's that, and I remember that was always my passion. So and and of course the the, the whole leadership bit, the whole CEO leadership running a, it, it was it was all in there, and it was it sort of had found its. Uh, during my sporting times, it had found because you know I was always quite big and I was always quite mature for my age I was often captain of the team kind of thing as a young boy and I liked that and I was able to and I, I learned a great deal about about teams and teamwork and, and the strengths and weaknesses of individual people and of myself etc etc so um it was it was a it was always in me that was always in me the desire and that I did have a passion for wanting I didn't mind how big it was how good or bad it was obviously it needed to be profitable I suppose to earn me a living but I just wanted to do it my own way and be my own man and, and if it was if it was going to fail then fine I was no you know I was I know that's no good but I I did I did after the, the PR job and then into into the, into the markets I worked you know for five about five or six years for others and I learnt about you know learnt my trade as it were 
Um, but by the age of 27, I, I needed to, to, to kick on and, and, and do it myself and see. And, and, and that's what happened. And I bumped into a, an old school chum who'd been a mate since the age of nine. And he, we said, let's do something. We had actually no idea what we wanted to do, but there was so much opportunity then. Um, and we set up our own business. So literally it was, it was a, you know, a desk and a pencil. That's all we had. We had no capital of any note. And of course, you know, financial services is about capital in, many, in a lot of the time. Um, but we we did it, and and that's that was it was fulfilling a dream, and it was and then it felt right, and then I thought I might, it might not have been much, and believe me, it was not much. We sort of nicked a corner of someone else's office through another chum, and literally sat there with a phone. We had no computers, no there was pre-computers, eighty-seven, I think, eighty-seven, eighty-eight. Mm. Um, we had a phone, a pencil, and and a dream, and that was it, really. And a really great letterhead. And a cracking letterhead, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> so the drive to lead was more about, or to set up your own business, was more about having that independence, ownership, autonomy, and yeah, leading it, rather yeah, than getting rich. Yeah, it was all. It was all about, yes, it, it wasn't. It wasn't so much about you know being wealthy and being a billionaire, millionaire, or whatever, or even having even earning a living. It was about control, yes, but about leadership. My passion, to the extent that I had one in sport, was was about team it was about that combination of different skills which is why I love rugby so much I mean rugby is the the epitome of that I mean there were more different shapes and sizes in the rugby field than any other sport I can think mm-hmm. of right and, and you know the fact you've got someone at six foot eight at number eight and, and behind them is someone at five foot nine a little whippersnapper and they they cannot do their job without each other is is always always fascinating to me and so rugby is if you like the best manifestation the best metaphor if you like for teamwork um but it's only one all sports have it all team sports have it and that was always a passion for me how do you extract the best you know so managing your team that each individual's strengths can flourish and their weaknesses are not exposed. And that was the metaphor for business for me too. Mm. And Matthew, you came on Vital Few to share um, some, of, some of this story um, with our participants. And some of the, the things you said have really resonated and stuck with me um, since that programme, or 18 months or so ago now. One of the things was give them the glory. Yeah. When you're talking about the context of, of building a team. So yeah. Ex- yeah. explain that a little bit for me. Well, it's like, it's, like, it's like leadership of any sort. Whether you're captain of a team or leader of a business, you are it, the boss. You are the main person. It is your, you are responsible. And therefore, your, your captaincy or leadership is, is the thing that... You know, whether it goes well, if it goes well, you're going to get the praise. If it goes badly, you're going to get the blame. That is how it works. That's, what, that's why the, 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 the goes with the status of the job. That is what you are. Now, if that's the, it's always struck me that if that's the case, then you, you don't need to be the, man, the, the, the person up front always. You don't need... It's not about you. It doesn't need to be about you because it's about you by virtue of your position. Mm-hmm. So think about the other... 14 people in the rugby side or 10 people in the cricket side or hundreds of people in a business. It's actually make sure they realise that you you don't need to be up front all the time. You are up front by virtue of your position. But give them the glory is is, is one way I I perhaps described it at speech. Because actually, you know... My dad taught me at a very young age. Said, you know, when th- it's a bit of a, a hackneyed old expression, but it absolutely capital- uh, encaptures it. Namely, you know, when things are going badly, you lead from the front. When things are going well, you lead from the back. Right? It's about them. It's not about you. Brackets because it's about you anyway. If you mm-hmm. see what I mean, you don't need. I have been in endless meetings when it is the voice. It's it is the CEO or the or the leader in that room. You know, or, or the per- the other CEO who I'm seeing. 
know, the big person in that room, the senior person in that room, um, his or hers is the voice that, that they think needs to be heard. No, it's not. You, you know, it's, your, it's their job to make the decision based on what others are telling them. They don't have all the answers, otherwise why, they, why do they need all these people in the room? You know, mm. it's about, and so get, get, let them have the, the, the centre stage because that's what you're paying for. You're paying for their view, you're paying for their knowledge, their experience, and, all those and it, it flows all the way through to that point about, you know, if you're the boss, you're, you're the boss end of so you're going to get the credit or the blame whatever happens so you don't need to sit there taking the credit all the time because it's there it's implicit um so it's it's about others and everybody needs to feel that they are making a that their contribution is appreciated their contribution is is valued this makes a difference and it's so much easier to do if you're saying that, well done that's it's about you you did this not me i mean in a way you're just the the, in, in an arch, it's a cornerstone, isn't it? That's, that's mm. a little bit that the CEO plays. Without the CEO, it all falls down. But it's a tiny little little stone. It's only one little stone. Mm. But I mean, it's a it's a great mantra to to lead by. Give give them the glory. But I wonder how how do you manage that? Because there's a lot of attention on you as the chief exec. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for you and your ego to grow when you're getting all this this attention particularly when things are going well so how do you manage that and keep yourself in check well there was a I'm I'm grateful sort of I'm I'm great I'm great with sort of stories that I was told as a kid but I remember what my 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 headmaster when I was a little kid of 13 and I was about to go off to senior school and he took me into his into his into his studies he did with all the sixth formers leaving going off to big school right Mm -hmm. and and he said Matthew he said okay well you're not a bad lad you're you know not bad sport you know reasonably bright Nothing exceptional, but not bad. You know, you'll do, you'll do okay. No problems about you. But I want, to, I want you to leave this room with two words. And I said, what are those? What are those? These two words will define the rest of your life. And they are the two extremes within which your life will be lived. And if you remember them, you'll never go far wrong. And they are humility and fortitude. I didn't know what they meant at the time, but anyway, I have subsequently learned. And it's that, so, so the, the point about it being is the moment it's all going well, then you have, got to, you have got to remember that the next step is always down. So, I mean, I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but it, 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 and you, you don't need to, you're asking me about it, and this is really what I remember. When, when things are going really, really badly, you need fortitude. When things are going really, really well, you need humility. And if you remember that, it's the great Woody R. Kipling poem, right? If you remember that, then you, you know, you're always, you can protect yourself from straying into country that you shouldn't stray in, namely self, self-complacency or despondency. You know, you've got these two poles, which these two extremes which guide you. And so when you, when you stray near, when you find yourself going toward one or the other, you, 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 it just keeps, keeps you balanced. And and that's really, you talk about, you know, things in business. Yes, they occasionally do go well. They occasionally go terribly, but they occasionally go well. And when they're going well, I always had a, with my board, always my, with my executive committee, I would always say, the moment I get, un- the moment I get comfortable, I get uncomfortable, right? It's a, another trite way of saying the same thing. Never think, because there's a competitor out there who's already thought of something to beat you next time. And, and that, it's that humility and that's a always never take it for granted never take it for granted and i mean it's it's these are these are obviously well well-worn sort of philosophies but they they are as true now as they were ever so 
So how about building the team? So you talked about the, the way you lead and the joy of leading a team, but how do you build that from scratch, particularly if you're, you, you've set up a business with your friend, you're then looking to recruit, to expand? What well, I think it's, it's when I run it, every single, when I, when I, with every business I've been responsible for, and I became a CEO knowing absolutely nothing about the job, age 27, and I'm now a little older than that, um, every single person who'd come and work with me um, would have 45 minutes in my office in their first week. And the point of that was, was, was to, to make them, what, what I wanted them to understand was, was, was to imbue them, if you like, a bit with that same philosophy, saying, right, let's, let, tell me about you. I was interested in them, because you need to be interested in people. You need to be interested in them and care about them. You know, that, that otherwise, you know, what's the, what have you got? You know, you, you, and if you are genuinely interested, because they're the people who are with you, you know, competing and making a success. So, and the point about doing that was to make them, so I asked them for 20 minutes about them, about their family, about their sports, about their hobbies, about their this, that, whatever, their music style, do they like dancing, do they like poetry, you know, whatever it happens to be. And it's a pretty rare person with whom you can't find something that's vaguely, you know, you're in, you have in common. And after that, after about 20 minutes, I say, that's fantastic. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, John. Um, you know, that's really, really, thank you for telling me about this. That's really interesting. And, you know, let me tell you, you're unique. There's no one else in the world that has that knowledge that you've got. You just told me about your background, your family, your travels, your school. No one's got that. You've got that knowledge, only you, in the world. And that's what we're paying for. That's what we want. And we want, that to bring you, we want you to bring that to this organisation. Because, we, and, and, and to make them feel that what we want wanted people to do is to make them feel that what they brought something new and that what they did made a difference what they did was appreciated what they did was valued and if you give them that then you've got an immense already you are giving them a, a a part of your philosophy which is immensely powerful because they feel that you know they are you know what they do and you care and that's really you know in terms of, of people businesses which is which is you know particularly financial service businesses are pretty much all people businesses or have been um they, then, then you immediately got off to a good start, and they know that the boss, um, whoever that happens to be, cares and understands and knows and actually is taking time. And that's, that's a really, uh, time and time again, I'd have people who would leave 5, 10, 15 years later and say, you know, I would remember that. And, and, and it was just, so it, it was, it was, it was we, we'd also say, have the courage, have the, part, I'd also say in those meetings, have the courage have the strength and the confidence to be you. I am you what you told me about yourself. That's what I want. And have the confidence to bring it. Have the confidence to have an idea. Have the confidence to put your hand up and say, have you ever thought about doing this? Because we used to do this where I used to work. We used to do it this way. And actually it worked quite well. Brilliant. And so and we'd, I'd go on to say, look, I'm very tolerant of mistakes. We all, you know, I'm very, I don't care if you screw up. You will be backed. My, our philosophy here is to pick the best people we can pick and we back them and we back them and we back them. And even if they fail, we back them because that's how people feel secure. And if you want the best job of work out of someone that they can possibly give you, make them feel secure and that, you, that you've got their back. If you've got, if they got, and if they, if they understand that, then you're going to get much better productivity out of them as an individual and them as part of a team. So that was kind of, so that was, that was how I kind of started constructing a group of people and, and then stay close to them, you know, all the, all the good old stuff, you know. You talked earlier about um, the kind of 
the diversity of the types of people who you might play rugby with, uh, all yeah. shapes and sizes, different yeah, that's attributes. that's diversity for sure. That is, yes, diversity. Mostly in blokes in my way. day. Didn't, there weren't yeah. many ladies playing rugby oh, yes. in the day. Um, and, and I know you have a keen interest in diversity and inclusion and you've been doing some work um, as part of the diversity board at... Diversity and Inclusion Committee at committee Lloyd's. Committee yeah, at yeah, Lloyd's, yeah. 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 So um, insurance is the sector that you're in at the moment. It's a very male-dominated sector. Yeah. So and much of the news about its diversity challenges. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so what are some of the... How are you tackling some of these challenges? Well... Um, Diversity, we we tend. Oh, you're right. I mean, it is, it, and the whole gender diversity issue is the one that you immediately think of when you think of diversity, and that, of course, is has been the most immediate present challenge, if you like, or most obvious immediate present challenge, um, and that has been, you know, we, we, all the talk about 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 gender pay balance and all that sort of. That's all very much part of that debate. However, there is a, the, the diversity and inclusion debate is, is, is even bigger than that because we are all uh, quite rightly uh, focusing on the gender diversity, but its ethnicity and social background diversity is coming up on the rails every bit as fast now. And it's the it's this, this full scope of diversity and inclusion, which, which I find fascinating because for all the reasons you hear about, you know, People would say to me back in the day, I mean, 20 years ago, sitting on boards, you know, there were relatively few ladies on a board. And I would say when I began to experience a lady on a board, we recruited a lady on a board, not that much earlier than anybody else. But I, I began to see them operate and would would sit, sit as an NED on some boards. that had. And I said, it's it's not that they're it's not that they 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 function um, uh, it's not the fact that the, the fact that the lady they, they just function better is the point you know they they, they you have um you know you've heard criticisms that well maybe the global financial crisis wouldn't happen if it had been run by more women maybe and i i'm, I'm open-minded to that because actually you know men display their personal characteristics they carry them out in their work of course they do you know as, as do women and that's fine and they're different beasts and they bring different things it, they are different and so um it, I, I just observed the improved quality of debate that went on when you had a diverse board. It is a simple fact. And there are endless studies, I know, that, that display that the financial performance of diverse boards is better. You know, that people may or may not want to accept that, but the, the, the empirical evidence seems to say that. Um, and it's very hard to measure, but, you know, other than share price or, you know, it, it is difficult to measure scientifically. However, I'm absolutely... a convert into the idea that you need diversity of all different sorts you know um, and don't fill your board with more women because you're going to need space for ethnic minorities and for different social backgrounds that is going to be the next chapter i think mm-hmm. and then then we'll begin to be really getting somewhere although there's a big a big war being waged quite rightly to get you know more ladies on boards and, and in senior positions generally anyway mm-hmm. and so in a podcast earlier this year, I interviewed an evolutionary behavioral biologist. Ooh, okay. And we had some really interesting conversations around diversity, particularly women. Was it a man or a woman? The... It was a woman. Okay. And uh, one of the questions I asked her, which I'm interested to ask you now, is what do you think men can do, male CEOs, people in positions like yours, um, to help support diversity? Because you know, you're representing that majority group mm. 
white male of a certain yeah, age who, yeah, who yeah, are am, occupying yeah. Guilty as charged. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's genuine to, to, to believe the hype. Okay. Believe it. It, 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 and it is, we all know it's difficult because the, 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 the population to choose from is as yet not so rich. No, not richly supplied. Isn't there? Isn't there the source, the supply of of of, of experienced business women, experienced uh, uh, black and ethnic minority men and women, and and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, you don't get many board members, uh, shamefully, from from the less advantaged parts of East London to sitting on boards in the city of London yet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is their client base to whom they appeal. So, you know, so I think my, my advice would be, I'm not sure what your behavior, behavioral psychologist said, but I would say, believe the stuff, believe it, uh, and then act accordingly. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it sounds a bit trite to say, well, just do it. The fact is, you're not going to really do it unless you really believe it. And if you believe it, then, then, then you will. So find ways to, to, believe the evidence because the evidence is there and you've just got to look at your eyes I mean I, I remember this is slightly, slightly going off slightly tangent but I remember on the day of the Brexit referendum in 2016 sitting with a bunch of people like me round the table very sensible it was there were about a dozen men of a certain age sitting around the table and they were all very illustrious businessmen of very major firms plus me sitting around the table and they were asked by the chairman so what do you think is going to happen today and we all said oh it's ridiculous no, there's no way we're going to vote to leave but, but, but you know but if we do it'll be a disaster da, 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 da. and it came to me and I said oh, I've I got one rider I'm a slightly taking the mickey but I, I said this anyway I said um, I don't know about you gentlemen but I've never been outside the N25 uh, do any of you live outside the M25? Uh, ooh, uh, one or two of them had houses in Oxfordshire, I suppose. But my point was, being a bit of a smarty pants, was I have never been to Workington. I haven't been, well, I have, of course, I have been to lots of places in my cricket. I was travelling all over the country. But I have not in the last 30 years have I lived outside the M25. And, you know, the, that is, that is, that is where, where all, we, that's where we live. That is where our country lives, and, in, you know, internationally, likewise. And our client base is out there, and it is socially and ethnically and and other ways diverse. And um, so we need to we need to understand it better. And I, I mean, so that that's what I would say: believe it because it's real. Mm, thank you, Matthew. My final question to you is: What advice would you give to a new CEO? Ah, a new CEO. Uh, um, well, it is the greatest job in the world if, you, if you're fortunate enough to, to get a chance to do it. I think um, my one bit of advice would be, look, you know, we're, all, we're all good at some things and none of us are good at everything, right? But be brutally, brutally honest with yourself about what you are good at and what you are not good at and surround yourself with people the stuff you're not good at. Um, just recognize the very narrow bit. You might be multi-talented, but let's assume you're normal and you are really good at one or two things, which is why you've been promoted and why you've got this opportunity. So you are really good at one or two things, but be absolutely honest with yourself about what those things are. So it's about being uh, honest and and it's about integrity and it's it's about being genuine. It's about being real uh, with yourself, um, because people will see through it in a trice if you try and be something you're not. Be you and let everyone else be them. You are the boss. The buck stops, etc., etc. 
But the one bit of advice is don't try and fake it because someone, the bit you're trying to fake, someone else is better at. So let them be good at it. Be great at the stuff you're great at and just be true to you and don't try and be something you know deep down you're not. Matthew, thank you very much. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast with host Gemma Soul and guest speaker and School for CEOs faculty member Matthew Fosh. Having listened to Matthew at Vital Few, I was really looking forward to sharing his insights on the podcast. The advice he gives to new CEOs is to know what you're good at and to do that really well. And it's clear that he does that himself. Matthew is a great leader of people. I knew that after meeting him briefly, and this was reinforced when I visited his office, just by watching the way people engage with him. He's high energy, he's positive, and it's clear that others feed off that. He also reminded me that leading people can be straightforward, but that first you have to know yourself and be clear about what is important to you, what your values are, and to stick to them. I got the sense he was quite good at that too. If you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find our podcast through our website, www.schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. It's also available on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Mm-hmm.